Hey, this is Coach Kita Bussey with 185 Arms Training, joined today by Anthony Stephen Malone, and I will let you do your intro. Welcome to the 185 Arms Training Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's, uh, it's good to see you again. And uh, hello to everybody out there. Thank you so much for coming on. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself to get started here? Uh, well, to get started, full name, Anthony Stephen Malone. I'm a, I'm a military veteran, British Parachute Regiment, United, United Kingdom, um, author of four, four books and a humanitarian. So what is the name of your book series? The book series is... On a bound road warrior available on Amazon. Very nice. And you're on your fifth one, you said. We are. Yeah, I'm doing me. Uh, I'm doing the fifth book at this moment in time about my time spent uh, the past nine months in Afghanistan, where I was helping with the e e evacuation of vulnerable men, women, and children over there, and ended up being a hostage of the Taliban for. 190 days over there. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the sacrifices that you've made and putting yourself out there again. You want to tell, tell our audience what happened the first time around and when that was approximately? Yeah, about 12, 12, about 12 years ago, I was um, I actually worked undercover for American intelligence in Polishaki Maximum Security Prison in Afghanistan. I was undercover in that prison for three, a three-year period of time, which myself and my team were able to feed information back to American intelligence and Western intelligence to actually help save the lives of a lot of American, British and Western soldiers. So the first time around, you were undercover working with the US CIA. Yeah. And this time around, your second time when you went back, you were there under your own name, correct? Yep, I was there un under my own name. I was there as a humanitarian, so we wasn't doing anything undercover, anything like that. Uh, we were just there to help get out a lot of, uh, like a lot of military veterans across the United States. We went out to Afghan to try and help as in the best way that we can. Um, the reason why I, I went out myself personally, I received a lot of telephone calls from people that I knew over there, my former drivers, interpreters, and they had no way of getting out. And a lot of these, uh, these young gentlemen have got young families now. I've got young children, some of them as young as two and three uh, years old. So I was in a position where I could either say no and not help, which is not me, or yes, I'm fire, I'm getting on a plane, I'm coming to get you. Yeah, we all saw what happened when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. It was quite a story. And I don't usually do podcasts like this. It's usually about competition shooting. But I do know that a lot of our U.S. competition shooters did also receive that call. And I know personally a lot of people who answered that call and went on their own as veterans to go and help get people out. So I think it's heroic that you answered that call and made those sacrifices. I think it was um, it was amazing to actually see the amount of military veterans of all ages. It was a lot of the what we call the old and the bold who went over there. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the guys have been retired for a long time from um, every services, the military, the Air Force as well. And the guys went out there and ro rolled up their sleeves and helped in any way, so uh, which you, was a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing to actually see that. Can you tell us, For I mean, I'm sure everyone saw it on the news, but can you tell us in your own words what transpired that led to the calls for help? It's the fall of the Afghan government was a perfect storm where a lot of different factors came together. One of the main ones, 
and a, a lot of a lot of your viewers will already be aware of this the corruption inside the former regime was ridiculous um and no government was ever going to really be able to stay as it was with that level of corruption the other thing was a lot of the government or members of government and families in afghanistan were leaving the country in the months before the official evacuation so it was pretty much a sinking sh ship uh, myself and my colleagues anticipated what was going to happen we and we went against a lot of what the special advisors were saying that kabul was not going to fall our timings were spot on we knew pretty much when it was going to go how it was going to go one of the big factors as well is the Afghan army was supposed to be 350,000 men, which is a lot of men. In reality, there was not much more than 50,000 in the whole of Afghanistan, which wow. explains how the Taliban and the Akhani network were able to move and take areas so quickly. It was like a domino effect. Everyone knew it was going to fall, end of. And I think some of the Western advisors should have actually done a better job and put more things in play because it was absolute chaos. Um, I personally don't go on what I read from other people or what I hear. I go on what I see myself on the ground. And it was absolute chaos. No one knew what was going to happen. So everyone was fearing the worst. Um, and obviously with the United Nations Human Rights Report that came out two days ago, I think a lot of people's worst fears have started to come true. And there's been a lot of um, ill treatment, torture and extrajudicial killings over there. But that's not me saying this. An official UN report was released two days ago and it hides everything. So at the moment, Afghanistan, it's still a problem. There is a lot. There's over 700 British passport holders, British nationals who are stuck in Afghanistan. They oh, wow. cannot get out. And contrary to what the press are writing, there's also a lot of American passport holders who are still there in hiding. And it isn't a couple of hundred either. Right. So when my friends that told me that they were going got the call, they were saying, well, no man left behind is yeah. what we've always been told and we always believe, and we can't just leave them behind. So they answered the call. And I understand you were in prison in Afghanistan for three years and you still answered that call and you went back. Well, it was a very good friend of mine and um, godfather to his ch children and his three children. I wasn't going to just leave them there. So again, <laughs> against what uh, my better judgment should have actually been, um, I was only I was one of the few who was able to get in to Afghanistan at that time because um, I've got over 22 years experience in and out of just Afghanistan. Um, 32 years experience in hostile environments. I know the culture. I know the country well. And we were able to go to Uzbekistan, travel overland into Afghanistan, then a 12-hour overland trip from the border of Uzbek all the way down to Kabul. So it wasn't an easy way of getting in. But it, it, it worked. It was fairly safe. But when we got to Kabul... It was a, a very different environment to what I remember it as. Okay, and you actually went in legally. You had yeah. all the documentation in place to go and yeah. extract these people. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, um, well, there's an amnesty. Now, the Taliban leadership have acknowledged and have put the statement out that there is an amnesty for people who wish to leave now. That's what Western media have reported on. The amnesty, in reality, 
And this, these are the words of some of the heads of Afghan intelligence and senior members of the Taliban I have personally sat down and had conversations with. The amnesty is a little bit like this. It's a bit more like guidelines. It doesn't hold for everybody. Anybody who has been working for the former regime or the US military, it looks like they will be detained and I believe the word is interviewed. I'll leave it up. Interviewed. Um, <laughs> that, that was what I was told by a senior member of the Taliban, who was one of the head of foreign affairs there. Um, in reality, the Taliban, this is where it gets very complex. A lot of your viewers and yourself will understand this. The Taliban is an umbrella which is put over the, the name Taliban is a lot of tribal elements and groups coming together. The Taliban is not a cohesive or all-in-one government. What I see now in Afghanistan, and what I saw the past six months, is it reminds me of what it was like back in 1999, where the Taliban were coming up in the power in tribal elements. That is what we have now in Afghanistan. And it's quite a dangerous thing because the top of the Taliban leadership don't really know what the bottom are doing and they cannot con control them. So is there and infighting? There's a lot of infighting. Give an example, in one of the buildings, one of the buildings in Kabul, which was a ministerial building, it had three or four floors, and you had a different tribal element running each floor. That's one building. Wow. You think about expanding that on how much Kabul, Afghanistan, the whole of Afghanistan, it started to splinter off. It's at a crossroads now where people are going to have a start coming together at the table, which I hope they do, and they start to talk or within six months, Afghanistan will be at war internally and there will be a civil war in, internally. Now, I hope that does not happen, but people have got to understand how much of a volatile and dangerous situation it is over there at the moment. I am not pro-Taliban. I am pro-Afghanistan. I think a lot of the young people in Afghanistan who have stayed, de deserve a little bit of peace and stability. The country's been at war for over 40 years. That means people who were in the 40s have never known a day of peace, peace. in that country. I want people to have a think about that one. So it'd be nice to see if possible People coming to the table from multiple the multiple tribal systems. And I understand how Western leaders don't want to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government at this moment in time. I understand that. I'm not here to talk about that. But we have to ask ourselves in the West a very, very important question. Can we afford not to engage with the Taliban, not to talk to them, not to open up a dialogue. We don't have to recognize them, but we do need to talk to them because remember, there is thousands of Western nationals still in the country. Like it or not, we need the Taliban's help or their leadership's help to get them out. Right. So I know that might not be a popular thing to say, but the truth is that what I've just mentioned there. All right. So you went in under your own name legally yeah. to help yeah. these people get out and then you were captured. Can you tell us what led to the capture itself? Yeah, it wasn't a capture. It was an absolute fluke. There wasn't any drama. There was no gunfights <laughs> or anything. It literally was. I was looking at a house with, with my colleague 
and we were looking at renting this particular property, which used to be the British ambassador's residence opposite the embassy. And this residence is owned by an Afghan. So we were going to rent it and use it as a guest house and use it for somewhere for us to, 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 to actually stay. This was around the two and a half month point that I'd actually been in Afghanistan. So December last year, some Taliban approached us. Now we were with senior members of the Taliban at this point as well, because we were being escorted around and showing us property. But another element decided to approach us um, and ask us to show our identification, which we did. We had our passports, our entry stamps in the into uh, Afghanistan. We had the letters and identification officially from the Afghan Minister of Commerce. So we were there legitimately and cleanly. There wasn't any guns being aimed at us or anything like that. They said, would you mind accompanying us somewhere? We went somewhere to have a cup of tea. Then they asked us, would you mind coming to our, our, our headquarters? They were polite and courteous at this point as well. So we thought, not a problem thinking. It's just a misunderstanding. They just want to obviously check our, our documentation. Not a problem. The gentleman who I was with as well is was very experienced in Afghanistan. Between me and my colleague, we had over 65 years experience in country. So we knew what we were doing and we could read it pretty well. We, we, we got taken to NDS headquarters. I got in the front of a, of a uh, Taliban vehicle. My colleague got, got in the back of one. We, 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 uh, we arrived there. We were then escorted and put uh, very politely into a holding cell, which we thought we're going to be a couple of hours, if that. Six months we were actually in there for, because within a week of us being in, days of us being in, it got very political between the Taliban groupings there. We had seven senior Afghan ministers petitioning to get us out. Ministers, seven members of the government, Afghanistan, wanted us to be released because they knew we were there to help the people of Afghanistan. We were there purely on humanitarian grounds. That, that was my objective there. But even they didn't have the power to release us. It took eight different countries and a lot of negotiations to actually get us re-released. Re we were never charged with anything. We, yeah, it was just absolute madness. But we were there for six months in that time. Some of the treatment I received was quite harsh. And I'm going to put that down to a overzealous or rogue element part within part of the Taliban, because uh, they weren't very happy when they found out who I was, obviously. Um, so, and right or wrong, I obviously, this guy came in to interrogate me, didn't really know what he was doing. Um, and I gave him a little bit of attitude, which didn't help the situation. Um, he actually tried having a go at my country and I wasn't going to stand for that. So I kind of told him what I actually thought, which might not have been the, the uh, best thing to do at that point. So the moral of the story here is don't have a cup of tea with the Taliban. <laughs> I say well, that very tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of those things. Um, anyone who knows me knows uh, I don't betray my country, my friends or my family. This particular guy was having a pop at like, <clears throat> former soldiers, veterans, our country and all that. And I, I, this was the interrogator. At the same point when, I, when he was trying to interrogate me on a different day, senior members of the government would come in and speak to me. They were very polite, very courteous, and they did not know what the interrogator was actually doing 
behind the scenes with not just myself, they were ill-treating and beating Afghan prisoners in that facility. Um, as soon as the hierarchy found out about this, they put a stop to it. So, but it's just an, it's another example that the top didn't know what the bottom was actually doing. So it was a bit, it was a bit rough for, for myself and other people. We persevered, we got on with it, and we, we are here to tell the tale. So at the, at the time that you were very first interviewed, I say with air quotes, they didn't know at that time that you had been there previously undercover, correct? They didn't, have a, they didn't have a clue. It was actually someone quite senior in the government who came to see me, um, which we would call a dear diary moment. And he went, I've just found out who you are. Oh boy, <laughs> and he went, how'd that go? Get? Yeah, well, I went, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you know? And he told me everything. I said, yeah, that's me. Absolutely. I'm proud of everything I've done and I stand by everything. His reaction was, this is a very senior member of the Taleb. His words were translated, I'm very proud of what you did because you saved a lot of Afghan lives as well as American and British. And that was this one of the senior guys there. Wow. So, he, so he said, whatever has happened before October 2021, he said, it's closed. That chapter is finished. And we put that to one side. So I was quite re relieved at that point. And you probably didn't know which way, way it would way. go. Um, I, 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 I actually had a rough idea because I've, got, I've got what I would call contacts within the Taliban as well. And the reason why I went there and I was very upfront and honest with a lot of people there. <clears> so I'm coming in, I'm going to help these people. I'm moving some families. There's some children I have a personal connection with. I want them to be moved to safety. And if they can get a visa, which they did, they were then moved to the United States and some others were moved to in, in England as, as well. So it was a kind of a very unusual situation to be sat opposite what would have been our enemy, like right. the, weeks, the weeks before. But um, so I said the Taliban leadership is very splintered and the guys at the top have got to start to control and mentor a lot of the people under them as well because there's some younger members of the Taliban who were very switched on very educated who have got a voice and some of them the leadership have got to person to them because these the younger ones are the ones who do not have a problem with girls going to school and that's that could be a key point in the near future it's the older hardliners who want to take it back in time not all of them there's some very forward progressive thinking people over there within the government the progressive side of things I personally saw with the Hakanis. I actually met personally a number of the Hakani network, senior members of the Hakani family in Afghanistan. And they were polite, courteous, perfect English, very forward thinking. But that's the Hakanis who also come under the um umbrella at the moment of the Taliban. So it'd be very interesting to see what members of the Akani family are going to do now in the next couple of months because Sturijin's the in interior minister of Afghanistan and other members of the Akani family are also holding senior positions. So I understand that they're on the on a one of them is on the FBI's most most wanted list. I'm not here to talk about any of that. But what we'll see is sometimes you need to sit down at a table and talk to people because I still stand what, what I said earlier. 
can we afford not to talk to these people now? Because yeah, they have our people. Well, they have our people, but they have our people in a big way. We caused massive problems, and it was only six British nationals and one American. You imagine if an element or a rogue element was to grab 20, 30, 100 foreigners, it's a problem. So in my opinion, we need to deal with this before it becomes a problem. And speaking to certain members of senior Afghan foreign affairs, they are willing to sit down at the table and have a conversation. So it's a good place to start. It might not accomplish anything. It is worth a try. Yeah, for sure, to get our people out. So you were in prison overall a total of three and a half years. What do (laughs) you do in your day-to-day to get yourself through that? to get through the next day and the next day and the next day? Well, Beyonce, the past six months were harder for me mentally and physically. This past six months was worse than being in Polisharki prison for three, you get three, three years. Uh, it, was, it was a difficult one because it was absolute chaos. No one knew what was going on. Um, and unless you know what the problem is, very difficult to res- resolve it. Um, the, the mindset, anyone who knows me, who has ever worked under me on, on any of my teams, always knows, always positive, always looking on the bright side. Um, I've got a very dark sense of humour. I'm obviously former British airborne, so I will have a dark sense of humour. And it's just a case that you pick each other up. You all get your bad days. I don't care who, who it is who's going to go through this. You get your good days, you get your bad days. All you do is you work as a team, pick each other up, move forward, stay positive. Was there times where I thought I might be taken outside and shot in the head or executed? Hell yes. Um, there was some strange d- days there. But... In the day, you, you can't let something like that get on top of you. You've just got to think, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it's roll up our sleeves and make the best of what we can. It's all about mindset, positive mindset, positive attitude. You've got that. You can accomplish pretty much anything. So what did you do to pass the time as you, well, you went in there thinking, well, it's going to be hours. And yeah. then it's a day, and then it's more days, and then it's weeks. What did you do to pass that time? Well, I <laughs> I actually read um, we didn't have a lot of bu- a lot of bu- books in there. We did have the entire series of Harry Potter. Oh, that's All a great the- series. <laughs> Have is, you read it before? Um, Nope, um, I, I had not read it before. I've got two young girls who love Harry Potter. So I knew a little bit about it. But uh, we we actually, pretty much all of us in there, read all the Harry Potter novels, all seven of them, at least twice, if not Oh, more. wow. So we actually know all the characters well now. But oh my goodness. it's just a case of read it, you take your mind out of where you are. Your body can right. be there, but your mind's not. You put your mind elsewhere, That's separation. That's fascinating. I think you and your boys should go do some Harry Potter trivia, maybe win some money. I'll tell you one thing, we are really good at it. <laughs> But, um, yeah, all, all what you do is in that situation. It's all about teamwork as well. I was lucky to be in the same cell a lot of the time with a colleague of mine. And we've known each other for a long time. So we knew everything about each other. See, it was actually great. There, 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 there was a time, I think it was a 70-day period, I got put in solitary. Um, so this Taliban interrogator, it wasn't that experienced, just thought it might 
it might kind of help to upset me by putting me in solitary. Um, oh. Had the complete opposite effect to what he actually, <laughs> to what he thought. Um, then after 70 days, he came in um, asking, do I want to move back in with the others and all that? And we're, we're all in a corridor, all next to each other. So all of us can talk through the doors to, to each other. I turned around to the interrogator and said, no, I want to stay here. I'm actually happy in solitary. Oh, and he was not happy with that. He was <laughs> like, get him out of here, back in one of those cells now. Oh, my goodness. So you kind of played a little bit of a mind game back on them. Yeah, I've, got, I've kind of got the old uh, Afghan thing still going <laughs> it's what it sounds like. That's awesome. So what was it that led to your release? You said it took several countries six months to get you out of there. What was it? I mean, I know they were under amnesty, but you said it's not really a true amnesty. So what led to your release? Well, personally, um, I would like to thank the president your president, because in a statement from the White House, he never named any of us, but he requested that the Taliban release the British nationals. Now, that was a nice thing to, to, to actually do, given the fact we are British, we're not American. But um, that, that did have quite a big impact. And we actually had seven other countries, eight countries, who came to, to the table and actually helped in any way, either large or small. They actually helped the British Foreign Office, who done an incredible job. I've got to say that this was a young team from the British Foreign Office who rolled up their, their actual slaves. And given the fact they didn't know who to talk to, what to say, how to deal with any of this, because it was a mess. They managed to get a result on it, use every contact that they could possibly get, and they secured us being taken to the actual airport, where we were met by a friendly country, and then we were flying out of Afghanistan. Okay, so what was that like for you? Did you go straight home, or did you have to do some debriefing? What happened right when no, you got back? It, 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 this was quite unusual because we went from Afghanistan commercially to Dubai. Um, the foreign office put us in a v, VIP lounge. All five of us put on another commercial flight back to Heathrow, England, where the foreign office had arranged that members of our families could meet us in private rooms at the actual airport. Oh, wow. Which was a really nice thing to actually do. They didn't have to do that. So they kept us away from the, the, the press, the television, yeah. everything. They just got us into the private rooms, met our families, and they let us leave by a back door out of the airport. So it was really nice for the families because this has been quite stressful for all of us, but it's been very stressful for all the families, the wives and the ch children and all that as well. So I've got to say credit due where it's due on this one. <clears throat> Members of the British Foreign Office, I won't name you. You, you guys know who you are. Incredible job um, and thank you. So you have children. How old are your daughters? Uh, I've got two daughters. One is 11 and one is 14. Oh, wow. And you said they're getting straight A's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did they handle all of this? They handled it, they, they handled it okay. I was able to make some t telephone calls while I was in there, not for very long, maybe every three weeks, four weeks, I was able to make a five-minute call home. I spoke to my family, spoke to my children, and just said, um, obviously, I'm over here doing what I do, helping people. I hope you guys are working hard at school. 
has said, stay focused on your schoolwork and I will be out of here shortly. I didn't know that, but obviously I was trying to look on the positive and mm -hmm. said, uh, and I will see your grades when I come home. So they better be good. So I think for a lot of people, the hardest part of going to Afghanistan or whatever country it is, is coming back. Did you have an adjustment period to go through first coming back or did you just kind of jump right in and were happy to be home and everything was good? I think, I think it's, it's, it's important to try and get back to normality as quick as you can. But I think it's important that, and I advise some of the other guys who were released with me, I said, you need time to decompress, take a couple of weeks off everything Go and spend time with your wives, your girlfriends, and your children. I said, spend spend time getting back to normal. So don't forget, we've just spent six months in a Taliban underground interrogation center in Kabul. Not the normal, what people normally have to do. And I'm proud to say, I, I actually speak to the guys who I came back with nearly every day. We... We always try and keep in contact and the guys are adjusting well, but I think it's important that the guys have got to give themselves a little bit of time to adjust back into the world. Things like normal food, being able to walk outside. Um, right. When it's just the little things we all take for granted mm -hmm. or exercise. Um, being able to walk for half an hour every day is brilliant it's i can't go much further because i'm so unfit now it's unbelievable but it's nice to be able to do that or turn the shower on and you've got hot water it's just the little things that really make a difference i think the guys have understood it um so uh, yeah i think the guys are doing well but anyone who's going to go through anything that we've done or anyone who goes to afghanistan They've got to give themselves a little bit of time when they come out of country to adjust being back in the world. Because it's mm -hmm. a very different place when you come back. Yes. Well, yeah, a, lo a lot of people have been there, seen it, done it as well. I think a lot of people don't understand that even something as simple as going to the grocery store to buy butter can be completely yeah. overwhelming. There are 50 kind of butters to choose from. And you've been fed whatever you've been fed without any decision making for six months. Yeah, if you like rice and beans, you're doing well. I love rice and beans. <laughs> Not every day. Not every day. <laughs> it can get a little bit, a um, little bit repetitive after a while. Right. But um, yeah, I think well, what you said there, it is very overwhelming for a lot of people when they first come back. Very, I think it's very difficult for a lot of them to be able to be, be, be around people. Other people. As well. Right. But, uh, so tell me about the people you were able to help. What changes have you brought to their families? We managed to get over 400 in excess of over 400 families out um, vulnerable people a lot of children in that in that number as well we're able to get them out get them to a safe country get them visas to a western country they have now come to those countries i'll, I'll give you a couple of cases uh, in america and the uk we've got them settled in the, their own properties the kids are at, are at school as well, and they're settling in. The languages, they're coming on leaps and bounds with English as well. And they actually all look as if they're going to be okay. It's, it's a bit like us when we come back. It is a very sharp transition from being in that environment to mm -hmm. being in a safe environment. And I think what I'm being told off a lot of these families which i'm in contact with, with a lot of them still um and they're ad adjusting well 
But I think the overwhelming thing out of all of them, including the children, is the relief. They're safe. They're not going to get a knock on the door in the middle of the night. The parents aren't going to be taken away. Mm. So have, to be able to do that, and we move people, we, we moved a small amount compared to some of the other organisations who were able to help a lot more. But we did what we could when we could. Um, but it's just the, the look of relief on the children's faces when you see them is absolutely priceless. And they're going to grow up in the West to be, to be educated. And hopefully, you never know, some of these um, young ones now might go back to Afghanistan and they could very well be the future leaders of that country. And if we have helped give them the right mindset and opinion about the West as well, which I think is important, then at least they're going to go back and say good things about us. Yeah, I think another thing, what you said before about them feeling safe, people watching this might not realize when you're in a country during wartime like that, your head is constantly on a swivel. You, you have constant anxiety. It never lifts. You never get a moment of sort of inner peace, that security. It doesn't exist. And then you go from that environment to a place where you can just relax a little bit. And it takes a while to let that go and to let yourself just be. Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it, to put that into words. Um, a lot of guys who are going to watch this, especially a lot of the veterans who have been out there on tours all over the world, and a lot of the veterans who went out to Afghanistan during the evacuation, it's been a year. Um, next month is the, is the year anniversary that American troops pulled out. Wow. Of Afghanistan and the past year has went so quick um, unbelievable it's just you're like wow you, like you sort of if you get caught caught up, up with everything that's that's actually happening out there it's so easy to lose track on time um, days week months you just there to get a task in done or a job help people get them to safety time doesn't mean anything but when you come back in the world, it's quite funny because people don't normally work 23 hours a day like back in the world. Like, and a couple of them were complaining, oh, we've got to start work at nine and finish at five. I'm like, really? <laughs> and you're complaining about that? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so what are you what? doing with your time now since you got back? I'm just recovering. Um, obviously, I've had to spend a bit of time going in and out of um, hospital. Um, managed to pick up six cracked ribs, uh, bruised kidneys, kidney infection. Six of my teeth got a little bit ch chipped in there. You know, interviews uh, will do that to you. Interviews will do that. It's some of them were a little bit, um, a little bit harsh. But um, I'm still here. I'm still doing well. And hopefully I'll make a full recovery. I'm still doing the work now, which is through my Patriot organisation. And we help a lot of the veterans, the families and the children, both here and over the pond as well. That's fantastic. And your, your book, so you're on your fifth book, you said. Were you thinking of ideas for your book while you were sitting there to keep your mind occupied or did this happen absolutely after not no the um my trip to afghanistan was meant to be a two or three month very quiet under the radar kind of a trip and i thought it might make a chapter to add to me existing book that was what i thought not oh, meant wow. to be a whole new book. Um, right. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, how can this happen to me again? You know what I mean? Right. Um, everything, all the nuances. The heads of Afghan intelligence sat with me drinking tea 
eating kebab, having a conversation about politics, about sport. I was thinking, people are not going to believe this. Uh, but hey, it's the story of my life, isn't it? That could but, be a um, movie. Well, yeah, well, I've, I've got three of them now, haven't I? So at some point, some, somebody, I think, will end up making a film about it. Because it has been a little bit surreal, but I think it's important because I am a veteran, the same as so many veterans who were actually out there. And I didn't go out there to represent myself. I went out there to represent veterans, as in... Just because you're a veteran, right, we're not serving, but we still, we can still do our job and we can do it well. And if it wasn't for veterans standing up and answering the actual call mm -hmm. during the evacuation, there will be thousands, if not tens of thousands of people still stuck in Afghanistan. So every veteran who got involved in any way, and even a lot of the civilians who got involved who didn't go out there but they helped help behind the scenes and the families who helped support the guys the vets who went out there i think everyone can hold their head up high because it was a phenomenal job what happened i don't think people have really thought about all this yet but how many times in history has so many veterans answered the call so quickly got on planes, went across the world and helped move so many individuals. No one's really spoken about that. And I think you'll find very, yeah, done by to try and find another event like what happened a year ago. I can't think of it. So I think people have got to stop thinking about the negative and think, you know, something on a positive note, Military veterans, the families and all the supporters answered the call and they did incredible work. And I think people need to write about that. Well, they knew nobody else was going to do it. If they didn't do it, it wasn't yeah. going to happen. And wow. those values that are instilled in you, the reason that you enlist in the first place, that doesn't just go away. Yeah. You never, once you're in, you're in, even if you're out, you're still in. I mean, wow. you're not going to just stop being who you are. You you can take the man and woman out of the out of the services out of the military. You'll never take the services out of that individual. Once it's in you, it's in you. And as soon as a couple of veterans stood up, answered the call, everyone just went right. How can we help? How, it, it isn't a case of can we help or maybe we'll think about it. It was phenomenal. It was as great to see because a lot of my brothers over in, in America from 101st Airborne, the Rangers Special Ops, they just got on air, aircraft and went straight over there. It was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, and they made a difference. There wasn't a cohesive plan, I think. I don't think anyone expected so many people to say, yeah, we're getting out gear, we're getting on a plane and we'll see you over there. Um, but interesting fact, a lot of veterans all of a sudden started to grow these. <laughs> so you kind of knew which ones were going to go. Right. So can you explain to us where things are at now and what you think is going to happen or should happen moving forward? Because obviously we still have people there we still need help and we can't get them out. Where are things going from here in your opinion? I think, now, this is my opinion, okay? And I go from what I see, not from what I read, okay? And I understand that Afghanistan politically is a bit of a dirty word at the moment. People don't want to talk about it. Not vets, politicians, okay? Right. I think politicians, I've got to cowboy up, put the big pants on and think we've actually helped the cause this problem. We need to be part mm -hmm. of the solution of it. It was Not humiliating. Well, I've got my opinion. I've got a deep opinion. 
Um, and I think I'm going to speak for a lot of veterans out there. Um, it should never have happened the way it did. Right. We didn't have to pull out as quickly. Okay. It caused absolute panic. Now, what's done is done. There's no point in talking about it now. We have to look at what, what is happening now, what could happen. And for once, the politicians need to start to think 20 steps ahead. If it goes well in Afghanistan, brilliant. If it doesn't, what are we going to do to actually help it? Because the last thing we need is for Afghanistan to become a failed state and a haven for multiple terrorist organizations. And we might end up in the future having to put troops back on the ground again. Right. It wouldn't surprise me if that happens. We are at a crossroads now where a lot of the Taliban, I'll call them Taliban, people in Afghanistan, they're not ex experienced, okay? They don't know how to run an economy, a country, look after its people, okay? They need help. They need guidance and mentorship in many different forms. People on both sides need to take a step back and a deep, deep breath at the moment. The Taliban were given a country a year ago. They were handed a country, okay? Right. They've had a year now to find their feet and see how to run it, okay? They've given it a go, all right? They've made a lot of mistakes, but they are still tr at least trying. Now, the West has got a decision. Do we wash our hands and walk away? Or do we engage? Not recognise them. Engage. Or in conversation. Sit, sit down. Engage in conversation. Just, Let's specify that. Oh, I'm just me. And I can walk into a room and I can still do it with multiple members of the government tell them at, at any time. Because... I'm not, like I said before, I'm not pro-Taleb, I'm pro-Afghanistan. I would like to see the people actually have a little bit of, of rest. And I would like Afghanistan not to go into war again, because if it does, Western countries would get involved again at some point. And do we really want to see American, British soldiers, boots on the ground again? We've done it for 22 years. It hasn't worked, okay? So there's no point in trying it again because it isn't going to work a second time. So we need to think of what options is there available to Western governments that they can sit at the table with the right people. They've got to identify the right people within the Taliban who to talk to as well. That's so important. Because you get the right people at the table, a lot of good can be done as well. Um, after, I don't like a lot of members of the Talibs. To me, they were the actual enemy for so long. I worked for three years undercover trying to stop attacks that they were trying to do on us, on our, on our troops. So for me to say we need to get to the table we have a pen, not a weapon. It's not an easy thing for me, me to say that, but I'm saying it because the alternative is the table goes out the window and we end up with an insurgency, multiple terrorist organisations. So people need to really take a long and hard look at this and think, where do we want to be in 10 years' time? That's what we have to really have a think about. But I'm not a politician. That's just my opinion. And I think too many soldiers in America, Britain and coalition forces lost their lives in Afghanistan. Some goods got to come out of that. I don't believe all 
the people I know, all my friends, lost their lives from nothing. So it would be nice if Afghanistan did calm down and it did become an inclusive, stable government in the future. Then in 10 years' time, we can look back on all the anniversaries of all our friends that were killed out there. I think, you know something? It's not great. We wish nobody died, but they did. But it would be nice that, that they actually died for something. The politicians have got to think about that. It's not the politicians who actually bleed on the battleground. It's us. It's the soldiers. I mean, so I think the politicians need to take a step back and have a long and hard think about, about, about this. Hopefully, cooler heads will prevail. Get, get to the table of a conversation. You know, it's interesting how you see the people and you genuinely care about the people. I know a lot of people who are put into a wartime situation see the opposition as almost subhuman. They're the enemy. They don't see people anymore. And I think a lot of people do that as sort of a self-defense mechanism in order to be able to do what they have to do. But yeah. you never gave up seeing human beings and genuinely caring for these people as people, not as the enemy. I think it's, I think when you get, I'm, I'm 50, um, I'm 50 years old, past 32 years I've spent in hostile in, in environments. And in Afghanistan in particular, I have seen the worst in humanity but I've also seen the best in humanity, and that's important. It's very easy to go to the dark side on all of this. Right. Very easy to do that. I've seen a lot of veterans who have done that. You've got to look beyond that because there's always good in every situation, and violence encourages violence. It breeds it. And in Afghanistan, it's in a bred generation. It's there. The circle of the violence. Unless that circle of violence and hatred is bro broken, broken, you ain't going to stop it. And it's going to turn into something ugly as well. And I've seen ugly. And don't get me wrong. There's, I've sat in meetings with people across the table from me. But it takes a lot not want to show your emotions, your feelings. I sat across the table from one particular guy that I know had killed a lot of British soldiers. All right. And I'm a former British soldier, so I wasn't happy. But right. you've got to look beyond it. I lost people. He lost people. The guy to my right was an Afghan Taliban commander. He had lost nine of his family, including wow. all of his all of his sons. So let's oh just get this into perspective. I wasn't happy. He was not happy. Right. He didn't want to be at that table, but he did. He sat there, and at the end of it, we shook hands. We shook hands. And he said, I look forward to our conversations in the future. And he's one of the gentlemen who's pushing to get the West to the table. Now, if he's willing to do that, there's no reason why we can't. Because how many people out there, if they'd lost nine family members, would be willing to sit at the table of the enemy? Not many. Right. Well, that's the kind of some individuals that they have who are willing to talk. So if you've got people like that who are willing to come to the table and they are genuinely wanting to talk as well, they don't want war. They want their great-grandchildren to grow up not in a war zone. So it could be an opportunity um, here for people to get together and have a chat that's it in Afghanistan you meet and you drink tea copious amounts of tea 
hundreds of courses <laughs> in one meeting. Okay, it's how it, it is over there. But I think some of these Western, I've seen some of these government ad advisors, they need to get people with them to advise them on the culture. Right. What is acceptable and what is not, because I've seen some very basic mistakes made by Western government advisors coming into, into meetings and they've destroyed the meeting before it even starts. It's, it is honestly, it's horrifying to look at it, but hopefully now they'll get the right people on board and advising them. And we move forward. That is basically it. So now everyone's just got to roll the sleeves up, get to the table, see what can be done. But it's not for those of me or the veterans out there. This is now in, in the hands of the politicians. Can you think of an example of some cultural things that Westerners especially tend to overlook that can be insulting? Oh, there's quite a few. Um, it's just basic respect culture. Um, no, it's, 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 it's like the very old military saying, and you'll know this, know your enemy, mm -hmm. okay? That way you understand your enemy. You know how they're going to react, how they're going to move, what they're going to do, all right? Now, we're not in a battle now. We're not at war. Principle's still the same. You don't walk into a meeting unless you know one who's in the room, who they are, their background, what tribe are they from, what culture, what background have they got, have their family members, have their fathers had a record of talking to Western countries. And if people look at it, they might be surprised what they find. But it's just basic due diligence that I've seen a lot of people not do. So I never walk into a room unless I know who's in there, who they are, and their background. Because I would look at that as being disrespectful. And I know the opposition do exactly the same. They want to know who they're walking into as well. And... I always as well, always make, and I very, very say this, I make one, ass one assumption, and that one assumption always is, the people across the table from you know more than you. Mm -hmm. Always think they're more switched on, they know more. Because the day you, you underestimate the people from across the table is the day you're going to have a problem. And politicians are very short they don't think of that so I think some of the politicians who have served in the military you might find a lot of the former military commanders especially especially in, in America some of them might, might might take a bigger role or take a step into politics now because you've got some in America you've got some incredible military commanders that have come out of the military, made the transition into politics, and we need more of them. Because if you put, and I'll, I'm going to say a name here, you put David Petraeus at a table, he gains respect of the opposition before he's even in the room, because they respect him as a warrior, as a soldier, and as a leader of men. If you're dealing with Afghanistan, that is the kind of ilk that you, that you need. And believe me, they know America's former military commanders, their leaders. They do class them as enemy at one point, but now, as they say, we want to welcome people as friends now, not our pastors, not our conquerors, but our friends. And that was from the head of Afghan intelligence who personally told me that. So like I said, there is an opportunity there. I've dropped David's name there because that's the sort of ilk that could really help. Uh, there is other 
very good military commanders out there that are now in politics. All it takes is for the right person to be assigned, get to the table and great things can be achieved. I have to say, I'm really impressed with your mental fortitude and your humanity in general. You're a genuine caring person who has sacrificed everything to help all these people. I think it's important. I think it would have been very easy to go to the DAX side, as, as what we always always say. Um, I think any good soldier or operator should always keep a hold and a handle on his humility. Being able to shoot a weapon is one small part about being a good, a good soldier and a good human being as well. Um, I think when you get to a stage in life that you've seen that much war and conflict over a long sustained period of time, I think it's important you take a step back and grounded. I'm very fortunate. I have a great family. They keep me grounded. If I'm having a bad day, the girls will come in and say, it's going to have a water fight outside. Brilliant. <laughs> okay. It takes me out of where my mind was, gets me back right. into here and now. And all the veterans that are out there, and I'm, I'm going to say this if I'm allowed to, if any vets are out there and you're having a bad day, a bad time, pick up the dog and bone, pick up the phone and speak to one of your old comrades. Because I guarantee you, you're not the only one who's having a bad day. All right? If you have a problem in the military, you speak to your team, you speak to your friends there, speak to your brothers in arms. Just because you're out and you're a veteran hasn't changed it. You got a problem, speak to the guys, go around, open a bottle of bourbon, have a good conversation, put some music on, all right? Have a think about it, gentlemen, because over the past year, we have lost a lot of guys, a lot of veterans have went to the DAX side, okay? Mm -hmm. You don't have to do it, lads, okay? And it's normally the strong ones that you would never expect as well. We all need help occasionally. We all have our bad day occasionally. Help, even I get a bad day occasionally, and it is only occasionally, but I do get them. But it's important, I think. I think everyone just has to get together and just make sure everyone's all right. If you haven't spoken to an old colleague for a couple of months, pick up the phone. It's a two minute chat and you might find you will make his day or his week, because he might be thinking some um, not good th thoughts. But um, like I said, I'm a veteran. Been there, seen it, done it. I've got the T-shirt, so I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anthony, for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your story. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for having me on, on your show. Um, I know now you are an international superstar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about all that. Great seeing you again. You too. Okay. You take care of yourself and thank you to everyone who's been watching the show. Yes. Thank you. Bye, Anthony. Mm -hmm.